Today on The Morning Show, we look beneath the surface of the oceans of the world, not only just peering into them, but trying to understand them and understanding the history of those who have explored our world's oceans, not only traveled on their surface, but also those who have worked hard to better understand how the oceans function, how they work, the currents of the ocean, the Gulf Stream, and so on. And what is it that creates uh, the movement that we see in the oceans? Uh, what are the ways in which this affects the interaction of various kinds of life? And how is the climate of our planet affected by the oceans, which of course predominate the surface of the world? And uh, it's interesting to think of, of actually how little most of us understand about this, how little we ever even think about it. I am thinking about it so much more after uh, having begun reading a book called To Follow the Water, Exploring the Ocean to Discover Climate, From the Gulf Stream to the Blue Beyond. The author of the book is Dallas Murphy, who uh, has worn uh, many professional hats as a playwright, novelist, and as a marine journalist. And uh, he has written uh, uh, some critically acclaimed novels. His most recent book uh, before this, an account of Cape Hope called Rounding the Horn, uh, was uh, released uh, several years ago by Basic Books, the publishers of this newest book, again called To Follow the Water. And I'm very honored to be able to speak for the next few minutes with Dallas Murphy. Thank Dallas Murphy, much. we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Uh, can you help us understand uh, where your fascination with the world's oceans uh, comes from? It's a as old as I am, some of my earliest memories are standing on the beach in southeast Florida and looking out the water with a sense of awe and wonder. And I, As I grew up, I took up diving, and now I'm sailing fairly seriously. And um, I navigated the 2002 Newport to Bermuda race. And for the navigator, the crux of the problem is the Gulf Stream. It, you have to cross the Gulf Stream from Newport to Bermuda. And during that race, I decided to write a book about the Gulf Stream and then went home and started doing some research and discovered, rather to my surprise, that the story wasn't the Gulf Stream per se, magnificent as that phenomenon is, but the system of which the Gulf Stream's a part. And it's a vast system, uh, partly confined to the North Atlantic, but extensions of it go literally around the world, a series of currents, it, on the surface and in the deep as well, uh, in a kind of linked system, carrying heat from one place to the other. I knew nothing about this. I'd been a student of the ocean all my life, and yet my study and my participation was confined to the surface. And I didn't know the ocean from, an, from a scientific, from an oceanographic standpoint. And this added a new, huge new depth, no pun intended, to my feelings and understandings about the ocean. This, there's some remarkable stuff going on in oceanography today. Hmm. Well, and you talk about how the science of oceanography, in your words, has come ashore. That is, uh, the work of oceanographers uh, is beginning to impact uh, other endeavors, other fields of study. Yes, this oceanography 
sort of came of age after World War II. We, we go back an earlier, Ben Franklin, for instance, drew a map of the Gulf Stream in the 1780s. But really looking at the ocean for, as you said, how it works for its own sake, what does it do, how does it move, is a fairly new endeavor. And the technology that came uh, to us as a result of World War II, sonar, radar, navigation systems, uh, various other pieces of technology. And following the war, then, people could follow the water with various instruments, some fixed to the bottom, some drifting with the currents. And most recently, in, say, the last half-dozen years, oceanographers have begin to, begin to see that they can use their oceanographic techniques, the measurement, that is, of the ocean dynamics, to predict climate change. You say one of the reasons that the ocean has been left out of so much discussion about the climate, I mean, you, you, you say that's such an absurd thing. I mean, it's like leaving the air out of Indeed. discussions about climate control, but you say, or climate change. But one of the reasons, maybe the primary reason why we have not figured the ocean into our, our, into our discussions about climate is because in your words, its internal mechanisms and its interactions with the atmosphere are stunningly complex. And if that's true, then certainly a, a challenge confronted you in uh, wanting to write a book about this stunningly complex thing for the general public. Yes, it did. It was a voyage of discovery for me as well. I had never read oceanographic literature, and some of it is very thorny stuff. I've, I hope to, if I'm, hope to think that I've simplified and clarified for a general audience these principles. I had to clarify them for me. Uh, that is one reason why the ocean has been left out of this, this dialogue about climate. It's sort of esoteric, and in a way the ocean is literally out there. We look at it from the shore and we see tides and we see waves, but that's all we see. To get beneath the surface and to get a sense of this global pattern requires remarkable work on the part of these oceanographers. I, I spent about 70 days at sea working with them on three separate expeditions. And I was, I was amazed at what they're doing and the brilliance of the machinery and the mechanisms they've figured out to, to, well, to follow the water. We've stayed away from this, partly because we don't talk with scientists very well. And scientists don't speak with us very well either. There aren't mechanisms by which the scientist comes out and says, here's what we're doing. I mean, I hope to think my book would contribute something to that. But on the main, we, we don't have a mechanism to speak with scientists. And science has become kind of marginalized from the culture at large when it should be very much a part of our culture. Hmm. And the scientists tend to speak to other scientists in very abstruse technical journals. And that's another reason why it hasn't come out. But oceanographers are just now, the, oh, the 12 or 15 that I communicate with regularly, aren't exactly aware yet of their own relevance that this discovery, as you say, the relationship between si between um, the ocean and the air to, to produce climate is almost unknown 
and it having been left out, has made the discussion of climate change quite messy. Hmm. And the scientists are hesitant, are hesitant to participate on that level. We're speaking with Dallas Murphy, the author of To Follow the Water, Exploring the Ocean to Discover Climate. I think it would be helpful for the next couple of minutes to sort of try to get our, get our hands around, our heads around uh, one of the most important and, and certainly well-known uh, facets of the oceans that, and, and, and an example of, of what we're talking about in terms of the movement of water uh, uh, within the oceans and, and the effect which that has on all kinds of different things. You've already touched on this incredible thing called the Gulf Stream, the most studied, investigated, probed, measured, and pondered strip of salt water on the globe. Uh, tell us exactly what the Gulf Stream is and what makes it so important. Yes, um, the Gulf Stream is the western boundary of what's called the North Atlantic Subtropical Gyre. That's a very fancy term for currents that go around and around the ocean basin. Every ocean has a gyre, at least one. And the western part of those gyres are very narrow and very fast. The Gulf Stream is the prime example. It's called an ocean current, both descriptively and technically. Because of the of most elemental properties, the earth turns and the wind blows, this water forms a circle. The trade winds blow from one direction in the southern part of the gyre, and the westerlies up in the mid-latitudes blow in the other direction. This, along with Earth's rotation, imparts a, circle, a circular pattern to this. Because of, well, elements of Coriolis, that is, the effect on things like water and air flowing caused by the Earth turning causes things to bend. And they bend and they bend and they form a circle. On the western side of this circle is the Gulf Stream. It flows extremely fast. And, very, and narrow, say 70 to 80 miles wide, but it's going at four knots, which is about five miles an hour. This is an extremely fast current. In fact, you say one billion cubic feet of seawater blows past Miami, uh, Fort Lauderdale, and Palm Beach every second. Every second. I and mean, that's, that's incredible. Now, from the surface, is this something we can see? Oh, yes, the Gulf Stream, not every day, but some days you can travel from the turquoise inshore water, and it's as if you've crossed a, a beaded curtain. It suddenly becomes blue, and in one boat length, you can see this separation between inshore water and the deep blue of the Gulf Stream. Not, it's not always the case, but often. And the Gulf Stream... Ben Franklin drew, up, drew, drew his famous map in 18, I mean 1787, a magnificent piece of work. But he showed the Gulf Stream as this kind of river in the sea flowing up past Cape Hatteras. It originates in the Gulf of Mexico and then flows up past Hatteras and then takes a right-hand turn and heads toward Europe. Now, it then forms up into this pattern I, we call the gyre. However, an offshoot of the Gulf Stream current, called the North Atlantic Current, heads toward England and Western Europe. 
And that's the reason why the famous palm trees grow in Cornwall, and there are palm trees in northern Scotland. And that's the reason why Norway, the coast of Norway, is ice-free in winter. Because this ocean current has, has carried seeds and other things to them. That's right. But what it does mainly is carry heat. Uh, contrary to popular belief, this isn't, this isn't the Gulf Stream per se. It's this offshoot, kind of an off-ramp from the circle. And then that warms the air. Here's an, an example of that interaction between air and water. That the, the water warms the air, and the westerly winds then carry that warmth on to Western Europe. London lies at 50 degrees north latitude, and yet London's climate is fairly mild. I mean, it's wet and it's windy, but it's mild. The other side of the Atlantic at 50 degrees north latitude is northern Labrador, which has quite a different climate. But because of this offshoot of water and the warming of the air and then the winds carrying that warmth ashore has completely changed the climate of northern Europe. But that's not all that this system does. This this I found extremely... It's extraordinarily remarkable. I'd never heard this before I started doing the work. This North Atlantic current proceeds up into the Arctic seas, and it's laden with salt because it's come from the tropics, where evaporation is heavy, which leaves a lot of salt behind. And it flows so fast that it carries this heavy, salty water into the Arctic, and come winter, when it gets cold, that water sinks, literally plunges to the bottom in a kind of submarine Niagara. It's incredible, the violence of this plunge, of this stream of cold water. And then, because of Earth's rotation, this water forms up into what's called the deep western, the deep western boundary current, and it flows in a stream back under the Gulf Stream to Cape Hatteras, and then proceeds from there into the southern hemisphere and becomes part of this vast global circulation. Hmm. That water comes back to the surface at some place in the Pacific, then sinks again and comes back up again in the North Atlantic, and that water can be followed, literally followed by oceanographers measuring its salinity and its temperature. It kind of maintains its identity, even though it's flowing through the deep ocean some in some places, 6,000 meters down. Hmm. Well, and it's so fascinating then that, that we will then see, you say, these masses of, of, of dense water, uh, one, of, one, one mass called North Atlantic Deep Water, another place, the Antarctic Bottom Water, but uh, different portions of the ocean which we just haven't thought about in such distinct terms. No. No, and the idea of this deep circulation is is really astounding. I I found myself kind of in awe of it. I've always been sort of an ocean romantic. And then studying the science, I found that this understanding enhanced that appreciation. These currents are sort of, this is a totally unscientific metaphor, but these currents remind one of bloodstreams doing just what a human or mammal bloodstream does is moving things about the body. In this case, it's moving heat from the tropics to the Arctic and then on the other side of this curve moving in the cold water from the Arctic down to the tropics. And the overall effect of this is to moderate our climate. It keeps things, it's not too hot, it's not too cold, 
and this balance of water maintains and moderates our, our climate. That's why it can't be left out of the climate discussion. We're speaking with Dallas Murphy about his book, To Follow the Water, Exploring the Ocean to Discover Climate. One of the things that your book discusses uh, beyond the, the science, the complex science of, of these systems, of the way in which uh, the ocean moves, uh, is also the history of how that has been studied, which in and of itself is a, is a remarkable topic and remarkably rich. For instance, this question of, of the deep water and how cold it is and, and its nature, uh, I mean, there were scattered people posing that question, but years before there was any sort of mechanism by which you could really accurately study something like that. Yes, yes, that, that's the very beginning of this understanding. It, the, first, the first person on record to attempt this is a slaver in about, I think it was 1781. He was becalmed off of Sierra Leone, Captain Ellis. And bored and with time on his hands, he was curious about what the water was a mile beneath his keel. So they, they cobbled together a mile of line, and he dropped a bucket into the water and then pulled it back up as quickly as he could. And he found that it was cold. And he, he says famously that it was delightful to have showers and cool wine in this torrid climate. But the question was, well, how come beneath the tropics the water's cold? The actual temperature is about 49 degrees um, near the bottom. When well, that's a, pardon me? Yeah, well, and the fact you know, he brings it up, puts a thermometer in it, and it's cold, yeah. and then he realizes it's prob- down there it's probably even colder. Yes. But when you pull it up through water, which is progressively warmer, that water in the bucket, of course, is, is warming also. Yes. So, uh, so he, he is limited even in his ability to really know exactly how cold that water is when it is at the bottom of the ocean. That's right, and that's a, that remained a problem for oceanography for the next 200 years. But his question was, and, qu- and other scientists ashore, when that data was delivered to them, asked, well, how come this is cold? Why, why wouldn't, and the conclusion was that the sun warms only a brief sliver, I mean a tiny sliver of the surface, and that this water must have come from the poles. They concluded that water seeped down un, in, the, in the depths from the Arctic, and a vast layer of cold water underlay this narrow layer of hot water. That was the beginning, but nobody could say, well, okay, so the water comes from the pole, but what does it do? How does it get there? Does it just seep down along a broad front? And that was the assumption for generations. And it wasn't until 1960 when, let's say, the George Washington of oceanography, a man named Henry Stommel at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, in, he had done some remarkable things in the 40s, and then come 1960, they began to develop these floats, long aluminum tubes containing temperature uh, sensors and uh, a means of pulsing sound waves to the surface that could then be read by research vessels trying to follow along. And they found out that this is an amazingly complicated system of currents. He's the man who discovered the deep western boundary current. He decided 
based on physics and his vast intuition of the ocean, that no, this water couldn't be seeping down across a broad front. It had to form up into a narrow current on the west side of the Atlantic, this deep western boundary current. No one had ever heard of that before. <clears throat> and then the next step was that not only is, this, is the deep western boundary current flowing, but throughout the deep ocean are these eddies and swirls. They call them ocean weather. And this is literally the same thing <clears throat> excuse me, as the storms, the circular storms that developed. There were storms in the ocean, they concluded. Circles of water, just like, well, in, in crude terms, just like a hurricane. Not, of course, with that velocity and all, but that the ocean was alive with this motion. And this was utterly unknown. And what did all of this motion do? Well, it moved heat around. It mixed various kinds of water, hot water and cold water, to create a kind of moderate water. And that discovery of ocean weather in about six, 1961 just changed everybody's mind. Hmm. And, and then they said about trying, well, what does this do? Let's get more floats. Let's get more technology that we can follow this water. And it's so interesting to think about the ways in which uh, this living ocean is a little bit like our living atmosphere with certain parallels that run fairly closely but then of course other ways in which of course the ocean is different from our atmosphere and then layer on top of that the interaction between the ocean and the air right and uh, we have again that stunningly complex system that you were uh, that you were uh, talking about that's right uh, an interesting example of that is El Nino sort of a classic example. El Nino happens when the trade winds are blowing across South America and thence across the Pacific from the Northeast uh, relax a little bit. They've forced the, the warm surface water literally across the Pacific Ocean to the coast of Australia. The water level is higher at the equator on the western side of the Pacific than it is on the eastern side. So when that warm water got blown away, it exposed the cold water off the coast of Chile and Peru. This is the normal circumstance. But then when the trade winds relax a little bit, that water literally sloshes back, that hot water literally sloshes back to the coast of South America. It changes the weather patterns all over the world. What had been cool and dry becomes now hot and moist. So it started in the atmosphere with a little glitch in the trade winds, it affected the ocean by, and by letting that heat, that hot water move back toward the coast of South America and then affects the weather. An atmospheric change, an oceanographic change, causing an atmospheric change. And one, most scientists think that 2006 was supposed to be such a bad hurricane year. There were dire predictions of 16 named storms and a half a dozen striking the U.S. coast. It didn't happen. And they started looking at, why, why didn't it? All the, all the indicators suggested that it would be a bad hurricane season. They started looking at El Nino. And the atmospheric result of El Nino was to blow the tops off these hurricanes before they formed up into big storms. El Nino saved us. El Nino also causes devastation around the world in terms of floods and uh, drought 
and all those things, and then it goes away. Hmm. If it, the conditions return to normal, and this is not a big El Nino year, 2007. But that interrelationship, that's the classic example of this interrelationship between ocean and air. But there are many, many others. Another, of course, is the warming of Western Europe by the North Atlantic Current. This is one scientist likened it to two coats of paint on the same croquet ball, the <laughs> ocean and the atmosphere. Mm. You know, this uh, discussion you've just given us uh, reminds us of, of uh, an interesting moment in the book when uh, you are, I think, quoting one of the scientists uh, in a refrain, which ends up coming up a lot in these <laughs> conversations. It's not that simple. <laughs> you said it's not that simple came to stand as a sort of motto of physical oceanography. Nothing in the dynamics of the ocean is simple, not in the deep nor at the surface. And it's probably a good cautionary word for us when we start talking about the climate of our planet, that uh, we should not jump to conclusions about certain things uh, being the cause, when in fact the cause of, of perhaps uh, something we don't want to have happen might be a, a very interrelated array of causes, and we need to know that or we're not going to be able to uh, work effectively uh, so. to save ourselves. Quite so. And this is another reason why we need to find this mechanism or mechanisms by which scientists can speak to us and vice versa. The, the, the whole study has been kind of muddied by politics. When it, this is not a political question. This climate is a science question. And as you say... This separation, what is cause and what is effect, is a constant question. But if we remember that everything is circular, that the Gulf Stream isn't a separate current, it can be taken from the circle and looked at as a separate current, but it's not. It's an arc on this circle. Not everything is connected. Conservation of mass. If water goes north, then an equal quantity of water has to go south. Otherwise, Europe floods. That's that balance and that connection between everything. <clears throat> However, it's worth noting that no, no serious scientist believes that this warming going on now that you hear so much about is part of any natural cycle. Natural cycles don't, don't occur so quickly and last so long and maintain such a steady climbing pattern as this warming. And what we do with that is another question. There, I guess, we enter the realm of politics. But as far as the formation of this, this is science, and it's all there, and they've been talking about this scientist, that is, for 25 years. And to a certain extent, we haven't been listening because of this marginalization of the scientist, which I think is a, is a serious problem in this, in this whole question. If we could talk to them, I mean, I, again, I hope that I'm doing a service in that respect, but if we could talk to them and if they were able to simplify for us this complexity, and it is simplified, you can simplify it and you can make it clear without losing the integrity of the system, but scientists aren't trained to do that. They're, they're trained to do their research and then talk to other scientists about their research in recondite journals 
like the Journal of Physical Oceanography and Deep Sea Research, that no one reads except scientists. Hmm. And that's another reason why the ocean has been left out. Well, yes, and this whole phenomenon of what you call at one point the segmentation of science is something we have to really be careful about because otherwise we uh, end up looking at certain things, certain facets of our world in isolation, uh, an isolation which can really lead us uh, to make some serious errors. That's an excellent point, yes. That's an excellent point. And oceanography is a perfect example my book is about physical oceanography, which is the study of what the water does. But there are also geological oceanographers who are interested in what the bottom is all about. They would just assume that all that water would go away because it's an impediment to their research. And then there are chemical oceanographers who are looking at the content of seawater in order to identify it so they can then follow it. And then there are marine biologists, and they don't speak to each other. Chemists don't read the same paper that o- that physical oceanographers read, and they don't speak to one another, it, it, with exceptions. There are conventions worldwide in which everybody gets together. But it doesn't then get to the public. I think this is hugely important, that we sort of stop thinking of science as hard and, oh, it's kind of scary, and we can't really go there, but we can. Hmm. We can. It just requires a kind of thinking about, well, okay, there's a lot of math in this. We don't need all of the math to understand what's going on and how it relates to climate and how it relates directly to our lives. Hmm. Well, and I love how at one point in the book you say uh, it's, it's really important that we get to the point then to, and you hope for the day when we can look back and see a distinct point in recent history when we stopped arguing and started learning. Yes, sir. We all need to learn more about our planet and how it works and what its future is likely to be and, and what we can do about that. We, we need to think of it as at a supremely important moment for us to learn as yes, much sir. as we can. Yes, sir. Good point. We can certainly do that in reading your book, To Follow the Water, Exploring the Sea to Discover Climate, From the Bl- Gulf Stream to the Blue Beyond. It's published by Basic Books, the author, Dallas Murphy. Dallas Murphy, I'm so glad we had the chance to uh, talk about your very, very interesting and potentially very valuable book, and I appreciate your time, and I thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show. Oh, it's my pleasure.